This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Colin Bucks, an emergency medicine physician here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. We get the opportunity to dig further into COVID-19 as the outbreak evolves and gets much, much more public attention. Today, we're joined over the phone by Dr. Greg Poland, Mayo Clinic internist and vaccine research specialist. He is the editor for Vaccine. He's widely recognized as an international expert in vaccine development, has worked with the military and on public policy, and is a distinguished investigator here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. My pleasure. I think that right now, everybody who's going to be listening to this is following the situation reports and is inundated with the rapid expansion of coronavirus in our country the situation coming from China, and it has a pretty good background of that. Are there details that you would like our audience to know to start with? Yeah, I, I think uh, a number of things. One is some very preliminary, I say it cautiously because it needs to be confirmed, but some very preliminary information suggesting a reason for why we're seeing very different severity and mortality rates as this virus has moved from country to country. The way I sort of explain this is, if you've ever seen those pixelated pictures, you know, the first pixels that show up, you you can't tell what you're looking at. When you get to maybe 50% of the pixels, you get the sense, oh, it's a face. And when you get to 80% or more, you can say, oh, it's a picture of George Washington. We're somewhere in between that. We've got enough pixels to begin developing antivirals to know how to handle the virus, to to have a pathway toward vaccine development, but not enough pixels to say, is what happened in China going to be reflective of what will happen here? So far, the very early, too few pixels, but very early Uh, impression would be, no, it's different here than there. One reason is differential cultural things. For example, uh, about 50% or more of Chinese men smoke. Well, that's a a dangerous thing for any uh, respiratory virus uh, illness. For another thing, there has been some preliminary information suggesting that the virus is mutating. An RNA virus like this particular kind tends to uh, gather a, a mutation that's, that allows for genetic fitness. So I'm talking about that level of mutation. Uh, maybe on the order of uh, one a week, one every other week, something like that. So we're getting into three plus, week, uh, three plus months in this outbreak, and there's some preliminary evidence, it's only one investigative team, that indeed mutations have occurred that appear to be making the virus somewhat less virulent. That's a great analogy and uh, and some encouraging news there. And I think that one of the things that causes public fear in any outbreak is that that initial picture isn't clear. We're looking at something new. And as the data um, is gathered, as we see enough cases to truly understand the clinical picture, we we develop the subtleties of this. Yeah, I've actually uh, somewhat jokingly said we need a new IC, 
ICID uh, code called coronavirus anxiety. (laughs) But quality information helps combat that too, and I think helps people be more comfortable that efforts are being made and understanding is, is coming for what this is. Could I ask you kind of a more basic question first of all? We've seen coronaviruses. This is the third novel coronavirus, but most coronaviruses give us the common cold. Do you think that most all of us have had a coronavirus in the past? Almost certainly. Um, there are four seasonal coronaviruses that have been identified. They cause upward each year of 30% of sort of the upper respiratory uh, colds, in quote, or respiratory illnesses uh, that we see. And the reason I say almost certainly all of us have, and repeatedly, is that, oddly enough, immunity to those seasonal coronaviruses doesn't seem to last very long in terms of protection. Maybe only less than a handful of years. Some suggest uh, really only two or three years. So, uh, yes, we've been infected. What's different about these, as you mentioned, is that this is the third recognized coronavirus that in the last 18 years that has um, jumped the species barrier. So this is inherently a zoonosis. It has jumped the species barrier to infect humans with uh, varying levels, but nonetheless higher than most respiratory viruses in terms of severity and case fatality. Do you want, would you be willing to make some comparisons to this and our two prior novel coronavirus events in terms yes, of... Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you think back to um, SARS in 2000, started in November 2002 and finished in, I think, June or July of 2003, there were about 8,000 known infections and a case fatality rate of 10%. So slightly under eight 800 people died and involved... 37 countries, not 81. By the way, SARS was declared a pandemic. And that's one point I would make is, despite what we hear, this is a pandemic. By any criterion, this is a pandemic. It was just a matter of time. Well, we had MERS. And in that case, we had about 2,500 known cases in the first outbreak. Um, And it was about a 35% fatality rate. Now, SARS spontaneously stopped. MERS hasn't. MERS continues to circulate, just a few cases now and then, primarily in the Middle East, but two very different, although there are some similarities, very different uh, beta coronaviruses, as is this one, a beta coronavirus. One of the interesting things that we saw with SARS, and is true of uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, that's the name of the virus, yep. the disease is COVID-19, Important is the propensity to cause um, diarrhea. And in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's only about 3 to 5% or so. But virus has been isolated out of those stool specimens, suggesting, as we saw with SARS, that oral fecal route, not just respiratory route, uh, could be a method for transmission. And there was a famous apartment complex during SARS that had disrupted plumbing and became a nidus for an, or a, an outbreak well, center. Interesting that you say that because there's, there was a similar outbreak in an apartment building with SARS-CoV-2. 
where they were able to isolate a faulty plumbing yeah. uh, issue that they think accounted for why people above and below got infected. Is there any sense, and I think you've already answered this, that exposure to prior coronaviruses is going to convey any immunologic protection against this one? Yeah, good question, Colin. None, none that we know of. In other words, would would immunity to a, a seasonal coronavirus in some way lessen the impact of infection with SARS-CoV-2? Um, we don't think so. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, rather, what we've seen, and, and, and in fact, let me just backtrack a bit, at one level, an argument for uh, uh, this not being true is that we're seeing the highest rates of severity and case fatality in older people. Yep. Now, true, they're immunosenescent, they have comorbidities, but you would have expected sort of a buildup, if that were the case, of some immunity season after season after when they're exposed to circulating seasonal coronaviruses, and that does not appear to be the case. That makes, that, that makes absolute sense. Um, now, one of the things that seems different to me, and I'd love your impression of this, is, yep, we're getting very rapid global transport of this illness, and that's to be expected. Global transit is something that we have to contend with. What seems different to me historically with this is how rapidly we're getting high-quality data, particularly genetic information about this. What are the implications of this? Yeah, it's a very good insight. Um, I, I would say that uh, this is an example of what the new biology has done for medicine and science. I mean, within a week or two, this virus was sequenced, the sequence information put into uh, a genomic database so that other investigators could have access to this. Well, the reason that's important is multifold. Number one, by knowing that sequence, you can design primers that are the basis for the RT-PCR assay. Number two is you can look at those genetic sequences and over time understand the molecular evolution. So uh, are the viruses that cause such severity in Wuhan, China, different than the viruses here? And you can literally trace the course of an epidemic. Uh, the other thing is by knowing those sequences, we can take advantage of that information to design novel vaccines, particularly when we get to the point of mRNA and DNA-based vaccines. This, this allows us to do that in an informed way. So there's, there's a lot of advantages to having that, that sequence as soon as possible and to sequencing as many uh, uh, isolates in as many geographic areas as we can. Uh, and you, you started to drift towards this conversation. I d definitely want to build towards that, um, that dialogue about some vaccine genomics. Let's start with talking about the degree of public attention right now. There's press conferences. There's news stories updated minute by minute. And we're seeing congr congressional hearings. Much of this discussion is when can we have a vaccine ready? What yeah. you talked a bit about? Um, you know, this oh, isn't even very well known for 
um, uh, physicians. So let me just take a minute to describe this. This so is what I this is what I was hoping. The yeah. vaccine development in the U.S. starts with an idea, usually from biotech startup or academia. From the time they come up with the idea until the time a vaccine is licensed, takes seven to ten years usually, and about one billion dollars U.S. Okay. One of the fastest was the vaccine just licensed in uh, December for Ebola. That took six years in spite of the public yeah. health emergency that Ebola presented. Yeah. So what will happen is an idea will be come up with, and then you'd go into animal testing. You find an appropriate animal model, and you're looking to see, is it safe and is it effective? So you're going to see if there's immunogenicity. Does this actually raise? protective immune response. We don't know in this case because there's no correlative protection. So you will challenge those animals with the live virus to see if it protects. If it does, then you apply to the FDA, go into phase one studies with their permission. These are called first-in-man trials. They involve tens of people. So this week, NIH and Moderna started the first trial of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Uh, it's an mRNA-based vaccine. We can talk about that later if you'd like. And they will test 46 people looking for evidence of any toxicity, safety issues, and trying to figure out what's the right dose, what's the right route of administration, how many doses, how far apart, that sort of thing. If, they, if it passes phase one, it goes into phase two, where you now enroll hundreds of people with the same eye. Is it immunogenic? Is it safe? Then you, you give those data to the FDA, they look at them. And if they agree that it seems to be safe and may have some benefit, you go into phase three. Now you're, you're enrolling thousands to tens of thousands. That, that gap between phase two and phase three is called the valley of death because the vast majority of vaccine candidates, antivirals, other medications, will not make it past the valley of death. That costs hundreds of millions of dollars to do. And when you think about it, when you're looking at an epidemic, let's just take Zika was a good example. Ebola turned out to be a good example. Ideally, you want to do a randomized controlled clinical trial. So uh, roughly half might get the vaccine candidate, half an irrelevant vaccine or a placebo, and you wait and see what happens. Well, Sometimes the epidemic doesn't allow us to do that. They have to just test it in animals. It burns itself out. If the phase three results are positive, FDA looks at it. They make the decision to license it. And then they usually request phase four studies. So we know about safety in hundreds of thousands of people. So long-winded answer to say we are not going to have a vaccine for this epidemic. Maybe the next one. Um, Lots of vaccine candidates were uh, developed for SARS. Not one of them got past phase one. Uh, the only exception to this is the president holds the powers of emergency use authorization. He could decide that at some point in the future, the risk is so great that the benefits and unknown risks of a less or unknown, uh, untested vaccine would be worth it. Otherwise, by law, the regulatory pathway has to be followed. 
Got it. And that's fascinating. I was going to ask about SARS and MERS, at, where, at what point vaccine development got stuttered for them. Yeah, really right at phase one. Um, some, some folks who are listening to this will know that I was um, providing direct care to Ebola patients in West Africa. And when I get, got back, was exposed to all the data about the, cha- the evolving genomics for it, and also got to hold a vial of the now-approved vaccine in my hand, but I didn't get to put it in my body. I would so much, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would not hesitate when there's hesitation about vaccines. It's a whole other discussion. Um, let's, uh, um, in the settings of outbreaks, do you find, and this is this is purely editorializing, I'm giving you this opportunity, that people are more receptive to um, vaccines than, you know, there is some public skepticism and, and debate um, about reg- regular seasonal or childhood vaccines. When there's heightened attention and heightened concern, do you feel that people are more receptive to vaccines? Yeah. Uh, in general, you're right. The, the higher the perceived risk of disease, the lower the perceived risk of the vaccine. And uh, that can be helpful, of course, in the context of an epidemic where you're trying to, uh, you know, test a vaccine. Um, I've been in vaccine development and vaccine testing for about, uh, what, 33 years now. And it always used to be that when we ran a vaccine trial, I was the first to enroll into the study. I felt strongly that I couldn't ask other people to enroll in a study I was unwilling to enroll in. Now, now of course, you can't do that. IRBs don't, don't allow you to do that or say that. But uh, just to make the point that these are, it's really important that the public have some sense of trust, which is why we have the regulatory pathway we, we do. It is designed to be sometimes slower than we want but it is deliberate, it is data-informed, it's time-proven, it's reflective, and it's transparent, giving lots of eyes the opportunity to see the data and make reasoned decisions. I, I respect both the premise of saying, I'm willing to take this myself, and also the importance of this process and the inherent transparency and safety that it ensures. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit, introduce the topic of immunomics? I'm sorry, the topic of what? Uh, immunomics. Or- oh, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> we actually developed a, a field in uh, taking off of that in vaccines that we call vaccinomics and also the inverse of that, adverseomics. But it takes, it takes advantage of what's called systems biology. So... As all of our listeners will know, much of science is reductionist. So we will look at a pathway or a drug with one outcome. And, of course, that's not biologically how, how uh, we were created. Um, so we, we are a system. We are, as it turns out, a very complex system with elegant redundancy built in. And what we attempt to do when we're looking at vaccines and, and how uh, the body reacts to it is to look across as many systems as we can. So it's not only the immunologic, but the genetic, the proteomic, the lipidomic, the glycomic, um, everything that we can conceivably measure. It, 
it's been said this way, and I think it's a, a pretty good way of saying it. You know, in the past, we did science by doing a couple of assays on thousands of patients. And the new biology and the vaccinomics and systems biology way of doing things, we do thousands of tests on tens of subjects. So some of the uh, experiments that we do in my lab will generate a terabyte of data. I, I, I literally cannot even visualize my own data. We have to send it to bioinformaticians who have AI and other yep. programs they develop to help us make sense of our data. We will give a vaccine in that defined time point. Look at how every single gene in the body reacts to that. Is it suppressed? Is it activated? What pathways are activated or suppressed? So it's really an, an unprecedented look into how the body responds to vaccines than we've ever had before. The, and then the implications for this. How does, how does that speed the development of a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, so, so it does, and, and I'll speak uh, uh, first generally, and then we can apply it to SARS-CoV-2. But the benefit um, is primarily understanding what is actually happening. If we know that certain genes are required for a protective immune response, well, that's helpful, uh, particularly when we know of perhaps concomitant medications that somebody would be taking that would suppress the very genes we want activated oh, to develop immunity. The other side of it is to develop molecular signatures of uh, potential harm in somebody. For example, um, my uh, one really terrible experience uh, I had as a physician is we got transferred to us a, uh, a student that had been given yellow fever vaccine. And uh, truth is, by the time she got transferred to us, she was, she was brain dead. Oh. But, you know, this was a known complication, visiotropic and neurotropic complication of yellow fever vaccine. Why? This was a perfectly healthy person as far as we know. Well, vaccinomics can help us understand that. I'll give you another example. Um, in the course of our NIH-funded work, there are various receptors that the measles virus uses to get into the body. So we give a live attenuated measles virus vaccine. And we and others had noted this is unusual. Healthy people, some of whom don't respond at all, some who respond really in a way I would call over-responding, and then the great middle of the bell curve. And so we looked into this, and we started doing sequencing of the receptor for the virus. And lo and hold, what do we find? In, in the people who have very low response to the vaccine, they have a different genetic variant of one of the receptors. And people with high responses, they have yet a different variant of that, of that receptor. Well, what we can do with that and what we're trying to do now is by knowing the genetic sequence of the receptor that people who don't respond well carry, we can reverse engineer around that in the development of a vaccine. That was going to be my question. The other thing I might How say, and, and this gets a, a little bit speculative, mm -hmm. but by knowing the genetic sequence and how, how the body responds to those sequences, we can hopefully avoid 
developing a vaccine antigen that would have homology to a self-antigen so we don't induce a state of autoimmunity. Okay. Interesting. Fascinating. So we've talked about developing safe and effective um, vaccines and some really advanced science behind this. Once, once we get through phase four trials, we often hear that the production chain for vaccines can be challenging. Any thoughts on how in another season down the road, if we get to a defined safe vaccine, strategies for implementation would occur in the future? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really insightful question. Um, you know, unlike drugs, which are, for the most part, um, easy to manage chemical reactions, and I'm simplifying somewhat, with raw ingredients, with vaccines, we are talking about biologics. And when you're managing biologic processes, there's much more noise and random things, even systematic things that can happen that interfere with that. Some uh, listeners will remember back um, in 2004, I think it was, when there was a shortage of influenza vaccine because an entire plant had the accidental introduction of bacteria because, of course, at that that time, all influenza vaccines were made from chicken eggs. Well, there's a biologic process that, to their best of their ability, they tried to control, and yet there was a there was a breach. So, so it is more difficult, and that can be very problematic. The other thing is that you have surge demand. For example, our listeners will be familiar with the fact that we now have two shingles vaccines. When the latest one was uh, introduced and licensed, it got um, a lot of demand, so much demand that the manufacturer couldn't keep up. And I think there were uh, roughly about six, seven months delays in getting the second dose and in even initially immunizing people. So it's, it's very hard for manufacturers to have a static and stable manufacturing and supply chain and to anticipate what demand will be. Remember that these vaccines are all manufactured at risk. So they don't, they don't they, they're right. doing, these are for-profit companies. How do you predict the market? And they all market? have uh, expiry dates, usually yeah. no longer than a year. So uh, a very tough process to manage. One other point, and it pertains to every drug we use, every vaccine we use, all the personal protective equipment, all the equipment we use in our clinics and hospitals, in an effort to trim cost to the to the very bare bone everybody uses what's called just-in-time inventory supply chains and unfortunately in a situation like this so much of our supply chain has now been outsourced to china that when something like what we've seen happen with sars-cov-2 it can grind manufacture or distribution of raw ingredients that are necessary to a halt. 
there's a list of 150 prescription drugs that FDA has that they know will be in short supply if manufacturing plants don't come back online with a healthy workforce in, in China. So th these are real issues to, to manage. I don't have the answer to all of them. I'm just aware of how complex it is. A, a friend of mine was sharing with me, and he's in a different industry, but he's saying and it involved the manufacturer of electronics. He said, even, we, even when we get the workforce back to producing these things, the QA, the quality assurance systems, are not in place because the next step down the chain has been broken. Um, and, yeah, and exactly. It's, it's not like you know stamping out nails or screws. It, it's a very <laughs> different and complex yeah. process. Just, just to give you an advantage, think about the quadrivalent influenza vaccine. Here you are independently yeah. manufacturing each of the four strains, lot testing every mm -hmm. single lot, and then mixing and lot testing again. Yep. Yeah. It's a very complex procedure. So as, as our time winds down, I did want to take this back to the very practical because I'm sure you're getting this question as you talk to others, to other clinicians and family members, and they call and they ask, do you have any special advice? What should I be doing? Where is this going? This yeah. is your opportunity um, to... Thank you for that, for that question. It is the most common one I get. I also think it's the most important one. And let me frame it this way. I think our greatest opportunity and at the same time our greatest threat is human behavior. The most contagious disease known to man is fear and ignorance. And the reason I stressed earlier in our time that this is a pandemic is not to cause fear or panic, but to cause preparedness. And the term that I'm using and getting ready to publish a paper on here is what I call contextually appropriate layering of protection. So, uh, Colin, just as an example, uh, you went off to West Africa to assist in the Ebola response. Contextually appropriate layering of protection means something very different for you there than me sitting here at Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester, Minnesota. Similarly with SARS-CoV-2. The preparations that should be done, the layers of protection in the midst of an outbreak occurring in your community is very different than for us in the Midwest right now where we're really not seeing much activity. Nonetheless, I'll tell you that the most effective maneuver we know, by far the most effective, is appropriate hand washing. I was hoping this now, was coming. <laughs> uh, even at our ID conventions, when we do studies, observational studies, it is apparent that virtually no one knows how to properly wash their hands. When you interview them, they all believe they know how to wash their hands. If you go to YouTube and you search for Dr. Poland and Jimmy Kimmel, you'll see a hand-washing skit we did where we use a substance that glows under a black light sort of, you know, simulating what bacteria and viruses might be on your hand. I and I think, think it's we really might be sharing a link with that for that. What you really have to do and how do you properly wash your hands, which is a far better maneuver, by the way, than hand sanitizers. But hand sanitizers right. are a second best. Right. That, covering your cough and sneeze, 
washing your hands before you touch your face or eat food are really important things. And they work along with social distancing. The, yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to reinforce that. And you said something really important about fear and preparedness. People ask me in different situations, well, aren't you afraid? Doesn't, aren't, aren't, isn't that scary? I say, yes, of course I have fear. Of course, I'm, I'm a human being, and there's fear of unknown, and there's fear of scary things. But I use this. It prompts me to be disciplined. It prompts me to adhere to infection control procedures in this case. And it helps me to watch others to ensure that we're all doing this for our own safety and for our patient's safety. Yeah. So that's, yeah, this, I we're mean, talking you know, normal human emotions. interesting to me. I get asked the same thing. Would mm -hmm. I hesitate? And I've told my family this. Uh, I have no hesitation yeah. about taking care of somebody with COVID-19. Yeah. And the reason that I say that is I took an oath, right. and I take right. that oath extremely seriously. I was one of the first to get um, smallpox vaccine back after 9-11 so that if yeah. needed, I could take care of somebody with smallpox. Let me just say one other thing, and this relates Please. to our common history at Mayo Clinic. I went back into the history books and even the yearbook of St. Mary's Nursing School in 1919, and there was a list of the nurses, they were all sisters back then, um, the list of nurses who had died in the great influenza pandemic. Mayo Clinic bought a small hotel right across from St. Mary's Hospital that they used for what they called a contagion hospital. And it literally brought tears to my eyes to read the story one nurse after another would go into that hotel to care and the doctors, too, to care for those patients and would die. They didn't know about infection control right. the way we do. Right. And the next nurse, the next doctor would go in right after them to take care of those patients. With a sense of duty. That, I believe, is our obligation. Yeah. We signed up for this. Nobody makes us do this. But at the same time, and as you're suggesting, Colin, we need to watch out for each other, how we don protective gear and how we doff protective gear. We need to watch each other. We need to encourage and insist that those proper precautions uh, be carried out. We are no more resistant to this disease than anybody else despite what we might think sometimes as physicians. With that tremendous insight and thoughtfulness, we are so lucky to have gotten to have you speak to us on this podcast. Dr. Greg Poland, thank you so much. Been my pleasure. Yeah. We'll continue to bring you updates on this situation as events unfold. And if you have enjoyed this Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.